So, a sociopathic, self-entitled, overinflated sense of romantic longing is one hell of a motivational tool, turns out. With a genius-level IQ as the fuel in this classic 1948 full-sized Kemper sedan with optional mustache accessory, I can say with some degree of confidence I'm one hell of a catch. Though, years of court-mandated introspection has given my admittedly overactive analytical mind time to crunch the numbers on encounters with the fair sex. The results of my exhaustive thought exercises reveal a conclusion so finite and singular I find it to be surprising and also somewhat intimidating as answers go. The friendly, flirty interactions with the fun, outgoing cheerleader types that my loins passionately yearn for would invariably end in crushing defeat and humiliation. Numbers birthed from tried and tested scientific method just don't lie. The ratio of successful encounter to ridicule-tainted rejection would be 100% to nil. So I've decided that a new method of action is very much in order. The constant negative response of reality can be made negative itself entirely through my willpower filtered through a lens of my own debilitating depression. To own a possession is to make it yours and yours alone. To make of it what you wish it to be without external consequence. If I hope to ever find love, it seems logical to me that I'll just have to possess it. Consent being a blind spot instituted by necessity is a variable I'm willing to ignore. If only to prove that I do in fact deserve love. In a perfect world, the fact that what I really want is for you to want me can easily be replaced with the fact that I want to behead a beautiful young lady and fuck her corpse. I want you to want me I need you to need me I love you to love me I'm begging you to beg me Shine up my old brown shoes Put on a brand new shirt Get home early from work If you say That you love me Oh, didn't I Didn't I see you crying Oh, didn't I Didn't I see you crying For a second time I guess a few gentlemen. Not a single one. I, I mean, I would hope not anyway. I would like to think that there isn't a gentleman amongst the bunch of our bunches oh, of men at yeah, our beck and call. That's, that's totally a facetious statement. Men are only gentle for social reasons. Um, I mean, sometimes when you're you're, you know, you're by yourself and you're, you're in the bathtub and you have, like I said earlier, you have scented candles lit all around you and you have some Sade on in the background. It, love yourself or no one else will, you know? Don't I, though? 
Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> hey, Chris. Hi, Jason. Welcome to another Lady in Red episode Jesus. of See No, Hear No, Speak No. I don't know why he does these things to me, kids. He claims he loves me, and then he turns around and he just smites me in in public to the world like that. And, mm-hmm. and then On the he street corner smacking me. my hoe saying, where is he, my money? See, and then he expects me to just be at his beck and call with the, the UFOs and the conspiracies and the motherfucking murders whenever he wants them. Mm-hmm. And, to da- and to dance with me. Uh, uh, honestly, I mean, no. I'll just say it. No. Um, I mean, I've Homie never seen you that. looking so lovely as you as you did tonight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cut it, just, well, cut, you know, just cut it off now. None of this would have ever been an issue had you not let me know what an issue it had it would be. <laughs> I told you that in confidence. <laughs> you told the world. I told you. We all, all found out at the same time. Yeah, see, oh, cause, hey. see, that's a strategy of, that's like a tough guy strategy. It's like, I'm going to tell all of you motherfuckers right now, because if anybody crosses that line, it's your ass, and uh, we'll see. But then we'll when see. people cross that line, you just weep silently to yourself. Well, I'm always in a different state, but there will come a time. I that line. I asked them not to cross it, and they crossed it I'm anyway. keeping a tally. You know how many times, <laughs> how many hash marks you got? By now, um, you chicken no. fucker, you're oh, building man. up the buns whooping of a lifetime. As long as it's in public, and we announce it beforehand, so that at least a bit of a crowd can show up. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna man. purchase billboard space for it, and your mom will definitely be there to witness. I mean, my mom will will push you over to have first swing. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mama. Thanks for your listening. mom will be my lovely assistant. That's right. That's right. You got to get her one of those sequinty outfits. Um, uh, but tasteful though. I'll, She's my mom. For fuck's sake, man. Um, I'll if it's got bunny ears. That's all. I, that's that's my only requirement. I mean, that's fine. It's going to be a sequin muumu with bunny ears, and we're all going to sequin bunny ears. It's going to be shock and awe. Shock and awe. Got it. <laughs> Chris, I got I something it. to tell you. I had a little idea, right? Uh, since, and I don't, I, I know we told people that the show format and, and the way we're going to be doing it is going to be a little different now. Um, but I don't think we went into any real detail about it. Did what you put a bandaid is... on it? You made sure you cleaned it first, <laughs> right? No, man. You, you suffocate it with a bandaid until the pus comes out. That's how you know that your antibodies are working. But anyway, oh, okay. the bandaid that is suffocating our open wound right now is the fact that you just with your crazy fucking schedule honestly don't have the time to do anything really but maybe talk to me on the phone and react to things it's um, most unfortunate so, indeed so for the foreseeable future i mean i'm sure chris will get a wild hair every now and then and and just have something that he has to talk about but for now it's it's really going to fall on me to bring week after week what I can and in doing the wonderful world of Eddie Kemp's I I found a neato kind of deal um 
the next two episode topics, uh, the next one is probably just going to be one episode. <clears throat> the one after, uh, certainly another three-parter. Um, I There's something that connects them all. And it's not the obvious. It's not the obvious at all. I need someone out there to email us at see no hear no speak no pod at gmail.com or s n h n s n p o d at gmail.com yeah bitches if yeah if you do it and you have the answer to what specific relationship ties the next two topics to this one you my fine sir or madam will win like a like a I think it's a pretty neat thing, right? Um I think what so. you're gonna win <laughs> what you're gonna win is hanging up on my wall next to my bed right now that I sleep in with my, my beautiful, wonderful Melissa and dogs and sometimes child. Um is the original hand pencil drawing that I did over a year and a half ago of Chris and I for the original logo of the show. I can't believe it's so already if, been that long. I know it's fucking crazy. But if you can if you can email us with the right answer, we will fucking sign it and we will call you dirty, most likely vaguely racist names on it and send it to you. And then you'll yeah. have a piece of us that you can hold in your hands and do whatever black magic ritual you feel is necessary <laughs> to do with it uh please don't but i mean yeah jason already gave the permission so i have to go along with it but, it's legally uh, binding chris it's legally just binding. No. just no we have ways of <laughs> tracking you <laughs> we don't i mean the person that we send it to will have ways to track them because i'll have to send it somewhere i mean your magic but, your dark magic we have ways oh. of tracking it oh i don't know i mean because it doesn't exist so it's like you know it's like bigfoot hunters or like uh the the catholic religion you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i feel that i feel any who's so that's that's all i'm gonna say about that wait until at least the first episode of the the not the next topic the one the one part of it the one after uh before you start flood flooding our inbox with so many <laughs> so many so many emails and answers uh oh, I but can only imagine. i will say that uh doing research on all three i did find out another kind of neat uh thing that ties them all together if you can give me both neat things then who knows Maybe Chris will give you a little kiss on the cheek. We'll have to come up with a, a second prize if your cheek is not kiss-worthy. However, uh, yeah, so I don't know why I said however. Um, <clears throat> but two things. Uh, one is pertaining to the subject at hand. Basically, it's a can you track Jason's footprints and figure out, you know, follow the same rabbit hole, find the hole and follow it and, and figure out what he figured out. Uh, and then B, I will, I will say that, um, I thought being parked was going to be a okay on the fucking noise. 
my truck will make certain noises, but goddammit if the dude next to me isn't fucking revving his goddamn engine. Oh, man. I mean, that just it just makes it sound like you're hanging out with, like, super manly men, though. I mean, that's just, that's a plus. I'm not even going to try to edit that out of the show. I need, you you put your head out that window and be like, hey, I need I need some more revs. Why don't you rev it a little more? Because uh, cause we're doing a show in here, and we're not wet enough yet. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're not wet enough yet. It, it's either him or it's the one of our fucking reefer units. But still, it's bullshit. That's like four diesel engines. <laughs> I'm basically sitting in the middle of and uh, hoping wow. you can edit all that out. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. Now uh, I'm glad no, for the make that up, six I appreciate that. with the truck on the other side of me as well. Even better, even better. So with that wonderful news that I've just received, that editing will not be as easy as I thought it would be, we're going to get to tonight's topic at hand, which is the meat and potatoes. The story, the meat, the potatoes, the the other kind of potatoes, the um not not fries, but like uh not chips. Fries baked. No, no, it's still just, still just only bake the one time for sure. Because why you got to bake things twice? That's ridiculous. Just bake it the one time and do it the right way the first time. Because taters can take it. Um, scallop potatoes. That's what I was gonna say. So this is the scallop potato course so of the tasty. meal. Meaning, today we get to crack open the head of old Eddie Kemp's and. Just stick our dirty, unwashed hands inside that little brain socket and just feel around for the the nice little particular things. You know what I mean? And what a nut that is to crack. <sighs> Man, if you could reach his head. Um, I mean, we have, like, Chris can kneel behind him and then Melissa can be like, hey, what's that? And, like, point behind him and then I'll push him when he's looking. All right. And then I can have the dogs run up and start barking at him. And then they can just like nibble on his toes, and he'll be like, <laughs> and then we'll be like, what? And and then I'll be like, damn. Anywho, we continue the story of Edmund Kemper the Third by remembering that he had just killed his mother and his mother's good friend. And then stole his mother's good friend's car and ran. Because he was like, well, killed my mom. Everybody knew we had, uh, you know, let's say a tenuous relationship. And uh, they're going to know it was me. But before we go into the story, I'm going to remind you of the, uh, this is the in memoriam part of the show. I know it usually comes at the end we're going to go ahead and talk about it now. So, the victims in total of Edmund Kemper are as follow. Maud Kemper, which is his grandmother. Ed Kemper I, which is his grandfather. And then Marianne, Marianne Pesh, Anita Lucchesi, Aiko Koo, Cindy Shaw, Rosalind Thorpe, Alice Liu. And then, Clarnell Strandberg, his mama, and Sally Hallett, his mama's good friend. So, 
So he said it's one of the big quite the fucking <laughs> tally. I mean it's it's yeah, it's a good one. I mean it's mm, quite the tally. It's like twelve or something. Wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's ten. Come on, Jason. It's eight after the the grandparents. You knew that. Of course I knew that. I mean come you on. Knew that. So he he gives like he's just like every other serial killer out there that actually speaks uh to reporters or writers or even detectives and things about what they did. They don't give exact same information to everybody. So when he tells someone later that his his reasoning for killing his mom was that he feared that his mom either had or eventually would have found the the items he had taken from all the women he had killed. And that's why he wondered if he should kill her or just kind of run away. But he says, I can't get away from her. She knows all my buttons and I dance like a puppet. So he knew he had to kill her because otherwise there would be no opportunity to be free. So now that he knows that he has to kill her, he's just got to wait for the right moment. Well, the right moment, as we talked about in the last episode, was when he he comes home from being out. She says, oh, I guess you're going to want to talk now. And he says, nope. He goes to bed, waits a little while till she's asleep. Comes back with a claw hammer, and claw hammers Clarnell. Uh. That's right. I forgot all about that. Um, that whole shit about how she hated the fact that he always wanted to talk. And uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I forgot all. About- and wasn't wasn't he the one who? Um, Accidentally left his gun in the car. Wasn't that one of the other college girls uh, that we already talked about? No, he didn't accidentally leave his gun in the car. He he was out cleaning the back seat of his car when uh, a a police officer came to confiscate a gun that he had recently bought, and he started freaking out because he thought it was the twenty two he had been killing with. But no, no, the cop no, was no, like, "Oh no, no it's just forty five. No, there was one, I could have sworn it was him, but there was one guy who had a victim, a teenage girl, in his car, and in some kind of fucking rage about deciding whether or not he was going to kill her or not kill her, he got out of the car and closed the door with her in it, and the doors were locked, and he was locked out of his own car with the gun Mm. in the car, Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. poor little girl freaking the fuck out, Mm. and she didn't know what else to do. She let his ass back in, and he killed Um, her. I I believe that was uh, the poor little Aikoku, who was the, uh, I believe, 15-year-old Korean dancer, and when he finally gets back in the car is when he says... Oh, uh, that gun is, I'm going to kill myself with it, but I'm going to need you to watch me do it. And, uh, as long as you don't, you know, flag down any help or anything like that, well then you'll be okay. You'll just have to watch uh, a giant man that has taken you hostage, blow his own brains out. That's what it was. How (laughs) fucked up is that? Well, I mean, 
that's really fucked up, but I think it's a little more fucked up what he ends up doing to her than yeah, for sure. than 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 the mind games. Ooh. But what a nice girl though. So let him back in. I mean, she's a terrified tiny dancer of a Korean girl. And he is with, a literal giant. With immaculate like, manners she has. I mean, he he was also pretty well-mannered, too. We'll get to that. But taught it well. for now, we will continue on from the moment that he decided to escape in his mother's friend, Sally's car. Thinking that the heat had finally actually been switched to on. Because there has been... <laughs> just It's just been ice cold the whole time. We spoke about that. The reasoning for that being that he hung out with cops and he would find out what they knew and he would find out what they didn't know and he would he would adjust and tweak from there. So as he drove, he turned on the radio, hoping to hear some kind of news that someone had discovered the bodies that he left at his mother's house. But there was no news. And that disappointed him. So by the time that he reached Pueblo, Colorado, after driving about 1,500 miles, he decides to go ahead and stop at a phone booth and call the police and confess. We also talked about this in the last episode, but just to reiterate, he he called. They said, ha ha, yeah right, Ed. Call back later and hung up on him. So he called back <laughs> later, asked to speak to a cop he knew, and... The cop knew where he was because it was the, or where his where his mom lived because that's where he went to go get the gun from giant fucking scary Ed. So he goes and, um, you know, <laughs> they found his mom and and uh, Miss Shaw or Miss Sally. Sorry, <laughs> Sally Hallett. Um, so after they go to pick him up at the phone booth in Pueblo. He just starts spilling his guts completely, completely transparently, everything matter of factly. This is what I did, how I did it. And then he starts showing them where he'd buried the head of Cynthia Shawl in his mom's backyard. Um, you know, he brought them to other uh, remains sites that he had uh, dumped the, you know, bodies and heads and hands at. And he, of course, had everything to say about it because it's not that he was even proud about what he did it, he he talks about these murders with such a, a nonchalant easygoing mannerism that it it's like he uh went to the store and bought some milk like i said before for other fucking andre chicatillo and shit like that he he went to the store, he bought some milk, he brought it home, he cut its head off, and he had sex with the body. You know? And it's it's the same thing. So, having confessed to everything, Edmund Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7th, 1973. The chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson, took on his defense, which he then offered as an insanity plea. He kind of had his hands tied a bit because Kemper's detailed confession sands an attorney 
we remember that right where he didn't ask for a fucking attorney or he waives his rights anyway um it kind of robs him of any kind of strategy at all except for an insanity defense but insanity is not easy to 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 prove even for the truly truly insane and since Kemper was such an articulate and, and clear speaker and and just it was so open about all the the women he killed um it's kind of hard to see this intelligent like guy as insane as a nutball you don't see him daffy ducking it fucking pounding himself over the head with a mallet you know it's uh it, it's weird so but never nevertheless he had in fact of course once been diagnosed as psychotic when he was 15 and uh despite the psychiatric records that pronounced him safe when he was released he had clearly not been cured of his affliction uh that's about as as easy to see as as it can be um and uh for jackson his his defense attorney there was hope that explaining all of this could help that case so while awaiting trial kemper twice tried to commit suicide by slashing his wrists he failed both times and uh the trial then went on as planned on october 23rd 1973 <sighs> so there are so, three yes wait, go did ahead he ever, uh, does he ever actually say why I mean, because I, I have an idea, but why he actually decided to confess? Uh, like, was it because he wanted the recognition? Was he really that um, disappointed no. that they didn't no, find him? He, no, not at all. He wasn't uh, a fame seeker. He he wasn't trying. He he wasn't BTK, where he he threw a fucking hissy fit when his name wasn't in the paper. He he was done murdering. And this is what uh, we'll we we'll get into a little further on in more in more depth, but uh, because it seems that all of the the women that he targeted were uh, just proxies for his mother, he wanted to kill his mom so bad, but couldn't kill his mom, so he killed all these other women. But then once he killed his mom, he was like, "Huh, well, so that was good." You know? I guess I'm done. So, wow. um, <laughs> Damn. so three, uh, three prosecution psychiatrists then found him to be sane. Uh, Dr. Joel Fort had looked at Kemper's juvenile records to examine the diagnosis that he was then psychotic. He interviewed Kemper at length, including under truth serum, which is so totally fucking for real, guys. And he told the court that Kemper had probably engaged in acts of cannibalism, uh, which is a new development at this point. He apparently cooked and ate parts of the girl's flesh after dismembering them. Nevertheless, Fort had decided that he, he knew what he was doing in each incident. He was thrilled by the notoriety of being a mass murderer and had been entirely aware that it was wrong. So those are kind of big things of of the insanity plea is yeah. you you kind of can't know what you're doing is wrong. Um you you certainly I mean I'm not going to say you can't revel in it but it looks bad to your insanity plea. Am I wrong? <laughs> mm, 
depends on how you go about rev- the reviewer, you know, reveling. Like, uh, okay, I'm talking reveling like laugh and like blood smeared all over your face. I'm you saying like, maniacal laugh. I'm saying maniacal laugh, blood smeared all over the, your face and genitals, and party uh-huh. hat and streamers. Like you are making an event of it. Yeah, then mm. it's okay for you to yes, then it's okay to revel. So, all of those facts are were enough for him to be found sane. Uh, so California relied on the, uh, not <laughs> the what the fuck? It's a big M, <laughs> an apostrophe, and then N A G H T E N, Manactin standard for sanity that was used throughout most of the country at the time. Uh, according to the wording in this, um, it held that a defendant might be found insane if, by reason of a disease or defect, he didn't know that what he was doing was wrong. And Kemper clearly did know that his acts of murder were, in fact, wrong. He also had shown clear evidence of fucking planning and premeditation of all of this. He right. drove around for a fucking year picking up hitchhikers, picking up poor, defenseless, trusting females, and dropping them off where they wanted to go only so that he could study exactly what helped them be the most comfortable with him so that he yep. could do whatever he wanted to whomever he wanted. That's that's premeditation in the purest fucking sense of the word. So strange that one person would be able to get to you so badly that that you would go through so much planning and effort to lash out on other people. Well, it, if he's if he's to be believed, and once again we'll get a little deeper into this a little later on, his mom was more than a nag, of course, if she did, in fact, keep him in the basement. Um, And he believes that she hated him because he looked like his father, who she then, he, you know, blamed Edmund for breaking up their marriage. Unfortunately, it's not that uncommon. It's not that uncommon. So, uh, but most people don't bring it to the lengths that either of them brought it to, of course. Um, there was one defense, defense (laughs) psychiatrist that was willing to testify to insanity based on the product standard, which allows someone to say that the crime is the product of a diseased mind, which is a subtle difference, but that wasn't within the state's definition. Kemper's younger sister described the strange acts that she had seen her brother do, trying hard to show that he was abnormal while Jackson fought valiantly through cross-examination to get to the prosecution's experts to get the prosecution's experts to admit that many of the things Kemper had done with the victims were clearly fucking nutballs. Indeed. They they did admit that none of this was fucking normal, but they would ultimately just stick to their original evaluation of Sane. Uh, they also went on to question the Atescadero staff um, their diagnosis of Kemper when he was 15, uh, having a lively fantasy world, though, wasn't necessarily psychotic. But I would counter that with 
isn't that fantasy world going on to be the 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 cause of the death of your grandparents somewhat abhorrently abnormal and psychotic not for him I guess I ask you sir I say I say I should expect so so but apparently not for someone such as him now we're gonna talk about Edmund Kemper on the stand he take yeah he's gonna take the stand uh he took the stand on November 1st Go His ahead. Show what do you bet? Sold out. Oh, how could it not be? And it's just full of adoring fans and hilarious. And just, just old man, just just the grossest sweaty underwear that's just being thrown at him like he's some weird, just just alternate reality Tom Jones. That makes me want to eat a bowl of cereal when the show is done. Everything makes you want to eat a bowl of cereal when the show is done, Chris. So, so, what the jury thought of the man who had so easily killed uh, isn't actually on record. They had large portions of his detailed confession and already knew what he had to say for himself. So, he discussed what he knew about his mental state and tried to convince the jury that his need to possess a woman and his acts of necrophilia were clear indications of an unstable state of mind. He had already told his interrogators that he'd felt remorse and that he'd taken a drinking more and more to relieve the pressure, but he also described the sexual thrill he achieved from removing someone's head and had said that killing was like a narcotic to him. He also described the feeling that he had that uh, two beings inhabited his body, and when his killer personality took over, it was like blacking out, and he indicated that the same thing had happened when he had shot his grandmother. But this next sentence should tell you how convincing that was. The trial lasted less than three weeks. Many of his outrageous admissions were uh, really, you know, which, one, which ones were true? And which ones are just him trying to, <clears throat> to, to play the game like a smart dude would? You know, right. just like he did at a Tescadero. He, he read all of these psych reports and evaluations and he learned from all of these convicted rapists what not to do and then figured out what to do with it from there so who's to say if anything he said to try and prove his insanity was true there's Even i mean there's nothing true. exactly so um so he had admitted to cannibalism during the uh, the psychologist Dr. Fort's analysis, but he, he would later recant that, claiming that it was purely for his insanity plea, which I, I don't believe that was just for a plea. I think he came out with it, but even that was a bit too far for him, which is a fucking out-of-this-world crazy thing to say. But I, think right. that, I think that eating the women... I. In the way that he sometimes comes across as thinking of himself as like a, a valiant person or, you know, like, a, a you know, not necessarily a white knight, but certainly someone that holds women on a pedestal. I think the I think the admission of, of cutting pieces off, cooking them and eating them, it, it clashed with that a little too much. 
for him. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I was going to, well, similar to what I was going to say, was that, that his personality comes across as not someone that that needs that that dominating power feeling that usually comes along with eating someone in that in that after murdering them and all that other bullshit because it oh that's usually what they say about it anyway is that you know it's right and and a a lot of times it's it's a killer like wanting to to keep a part of that person inside them forever kind of deal you know what i mean and and with with edmund he as again we'll go into uh more depth in, in, in a little bit here he he does say that he saw it because he was so awkward that he couldn't approach women so instead of just going out and playing the field and just eating those fucking rejections up like mad like most people have to deal with he said oh i know if i kill them that's like dating them and then uh you know i think eating them and, and keeping a part of them inside him it just it didn't mesh well with that or at least admit the admittance of it um which i mean fuck man jesus goddamn christ so on on november 8th yeah because it's a bit much on november 8th the six man six woman jury deliberated for five hours before finding kemper sane and guilty of eight counts of first degree murder although kemper hoped to receive the death penalty he was convicted during a time when the Supreme Court had placed a moratorium on capital punishment, and all death sentences were commuted to life imprisonment. The, de- the death penalty became what? Hang on, time out. Uh oh, what happened? Oh, Lot Mike lizard. Is home. Oh, Uncle yeah. Mike is home. No, God, that lizards. sounds that sounds like like your mom's lover just just strolled up, and he's got. He's got a brand new shiny Nintendo game for you. So brand you shut up and be in the other room while he goes and bangs your mom. Right. No, no, no new uncles in that sense. Just okay. one hey, now clean slutty one. Well, he's Aww. not slutty. I just call him. Ask that. Ask him ask him if he if he if he really wined and dined himself. Or if he just went at it like an animal. Uh, Jason and the show would like to know, uh, did you do any whining and dining or did you just go at it full on animal style? Buttfucker, did you hear me? Wow. You know what? Mm-mm. The silence no, is answer enough. Yeah, I don't think he's listening. He said that he doesn't have to talk about his personal sexual trysts with you, Magistus. That's fine, too. I don't have to live with him. So, uh, so they found him sane on, uh, and, you know, sane and guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder. Uh, Although, like I said, he he wanted the death penalty, but the Supreme Court was like, eh, let's talk about it for a bit before we let stuff happen to other people. And, uh, so he got life imprisonment, and then the death penalty came back to be nice. applicable <clears throat> to uh, only to crimes committed after January 1st of 1974, which isn't applicable to him. Oh. So, well, for him. 
Huh. So the judge asked him what he thought his punishment should be. And for Edmund, it, it really wasn't hard for him to come up with what he thought his punishment should be. Because uh, he thought about it for a long fucking time, like since childhood. And he told the judge that he believed that he should be tortured to death. But seeing as how that's usually not a, uh, it's not a thing that they'll do for you. Uh, he had no <laughs> such luck. So instead, for old Eddie Kemp's, it was life imprisonment. First, he life was sent to. Prison. Yeah. Oh, it, can you really call life in prison life? Mm. What? What's that mm. now? Nothing. Can you really call I'm it just... life? No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's it's not. But not everyone deserves life, Chris. I guess. No, he, he deserved Wink. quite a bit less than that. But uh, still. Anywho's. Giant, awkward ass, fumbling around fucking prison. You, you know what forever. I say uh, about about Edmund in, in particular? And, and this is going to sound bad, uh, hopefully, until I, I explain it. But I'm glad that he couldn't get the death penalty. Because him being alive and talking about everything has given so much valuable insight into the mind of the person that's capable of such horrors that it has helped catch other terrible people much sooner. It's helped other people get help for their urges like that before they act on them. Um, you know what I mean? It, it's If, if the yeah. person is intelligent enough to be used as a tool to then make sure it doesn't happen again. I hate saying this, but we would have, we would have lost a lot of valuable information had Edmund Kemper been put to death. Right. That is literally the only reason I say that because the, the fucking horror, horror, horror show that this guy's fucking actions were are of uh, me saying that they're beyond uh just just it's fucking ridiculous it, is an understatement yeah this uh, yeah i i can only uh, fucking standing outside in the trunk of his car on the, on the, uh, this fucking guy just yeah outside in the street in front of his mom's apartment cutting the heads off of two girls in his trunk, probably before, whistling goddamn zippity doo Yeah, before he later brings them inside and does other stuff. Yeah, and then, and yeah, it gets worse Some somehow. That's not the bad parts. What the fuck, man? <laughs> right, somehow. <sighs> we haven't figured so, it out yet. Somehow. So he gets, he gets a life fucking sentence. Uh, he was first sent to the California Medical Facility State Prison at uh, Vacaville, I'm guessing is how that's pronounced, uh, which is north of San Francisco, for observation. And then he ostensibly, ostensibly ended up at the maximum security prison at Folsom. At one point, he, he went as far as requesting psychosurgery, which would involve inserting a probe into his brain 
to kill brain tissue and potentially maybe even cure him of his compulsive sexual aggressions. Uh, but his request was denied, uh, most likely because authorities feared that he might then petition for release. Because if you have, um, if you're sentenced to life in prison, technically you can get out. Right. You know what I mean? If you yeah, can yeah. somehow prove that you'll never, ever, ever hurt another living thing ever again, and they believe you, you can get out. So they're like, you know, we're not even going to give you the uh, the opportunity to make that a thing. <laughs> so no, no fixing you. Um, no for real. No, no. No fix for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shut up. Still more uh, valuable broken, as long as he's in prison. True, true, true. Uh, he did, in prison, become a model inmate. Uh, helping to read books on tape for the blind, um, sure, which yeah. uh, he he is the most prolific book on tape recorder in prison history, I believe. Huh. With over it's either it's either either five thousand or fifteen thousand hours of reading books. Um, wow! I, I I know I told you that I I couldn't find. Um, audio of that um and i wanted it to, to somewhat be a, a little bit of a surprise because <laughs> uh guess what chris you guess what chris you scratched your butt and now your finger <laughs> smells like cheese okay i mean that's every day but for today i found I found the entire recording of his reading of Flowers in the Attic, which is somehow a, a huge, hugely popular book um, about incest and familial abuse. Well, then. So, how, Christopher, would you like to hear Edmund Kemper reading a little bit? Of flowers in the attic, real quick. I, I mean, I'm interested. Sure, it depends on what part. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was just gonna, I was just gonna start the, 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 the recording and, and like, jump to somewhere. I mean, it's, it's gonna sure. be his voice wherever we go, you know. Go for so, it. So, uh, all right, let this me, uh, this is gonna be turn this up, and then I'll, uh, for the listeners, I will insert, um. I'll insert better audio later. Let me, uh, tablet work. Oh, but while I'm, I'm getting the tablet to, to do what it's supposed to be doing, I want to let you know that, uh, he, he, uh, he put 5,000 hours into reading. Um, he, what did he record is a good question. And I will tell you that, uh, there are pulpy Westerns, romance novels, there are four of Frank Herbert's Dune Saga books, um, a novelization of the Star Wars trilogy, <laughs> and uh, and a Robin Cook potboiler, whatever the fuck that sentence means. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm a little lost on that one myself. Yeah, but that's okay. You know, um, that's okay. So. Chapter one. Goodbye, Daddy. 
Can you hear it? Yeah. Truly, when I was very young, way back in the 50s, I believed all of life would be like one long and perfect summer day. He does have quite a clear voice. There's not much I can say about our earliest childhood except that he was, uh, he was a very, very, very intelligent and, um, I don't know, articulate man. Yeah, it's it's just, it's, uh, it is a shame that, uh, such a mind was then, uh, wasted with such a disease. Because everyone that met him said how how affable he is and how friendly and and he would make you feel welcome and he was like a like a, a gracious host and like he was funny like he was super funny and he was just a a nice really nice guy to hang out with until he decided that he either was upset with you or that he wanted to fuck with you would scare you because when a six foot nine, 255 pound man decides that he wants to fuck with you and scare you or even worse is actually mad at you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, there's little in this world that is just as terrifying as that sounds. <sighs> so that's a big, uh, so now we're we're gonna get into like I said he did extensive interviews. Um, it it kind of started with uh, FBI special agents John Douglas and Robert R. Ressler. Um, that's R E S S L E R. Uh, became part of the behavioral science unit at Quantico during its early years in the seventies, and they had gone on the road talking with local police jurisdic- jurisdictions about the brand new science of profiling. They had come up with the idea to visit prisons and interview notorious killers. They hoped to include all the information that they would gather in the data that they were making um, about the people that would commit these crimes, uh, as well as people who had these crimes committed to them, or on them. You know, things like that. Uh, So, both of these guys have written about visits in their books with Kemper. Um, And they were generally the the team who did prison interviews. Um, Douglas says in his book, Mindhunter, if you want to understand the artist, look at his work, which really is a somewhat eloquent way to put that, but it's also maybe a a bit too highfalutin for his, uh, his, his subject matter i would yeah. be like well if you want to see how the garbage man takes a dump look at the hole in his backyard or something you know <laughs> that's good enough <sighs> nah garbage men are, are they're good people they're good people um so they <laughs> would end up uh contacting all kinds of different offenders uh mass murderers assassins serial killers they eventually collected data on 118 victims including some who had survived and attempted murder. Uh, The goal was to gather information about how they were planned and committed, what the killers did and thought about afterwards, uh, what kind of fantasies they had, what they did before their next incident. Um, And Kemper was among the 36 men who agreed to be interviewed. And Ressler had a pretty scary story 
about interviewing him. Um, he he would uh, on his third visit to see Kemper, um, he went by himself. His first two visits, he had someone else with him, but this time he thought that he had, you know, he had achieved like a a proper rapport with Kemper, so he went in alone. They ended up in a small locked cell near death row for four hours. Uh, Wrestler finally used a button to summon a guard, but then no one came, and he then just he just continued to talk to Kemper, try to be as calm as possible while he's frantically pressing this fucking button, while no one is coming and he said that Kemper was was sensitive to his psyche and he believed that he must have appeared apprehensive for he claimed that Kemper told him to relax and then said if I went apeshit in here you'd be in a lot of trouble wouldn't you I could screw your head off and place it on the table to greet the guard (laughs) and he damn sure could so wrestler uh, you know trying i'm guessing his best not to shit his pants um you know by he bided his time he 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 went back and forth you know uh just just words for words with fucking kemper just hoping to give the impression that that he had a way to defend himself against this giant man and then eventually a guard finally fucking came and kemper said that he i was just kidding <laughs> But I'll tell you what, right. wrestler never fucking went in alone to interview Kemper again, ever. No, no. <laughs> uh, the other guy, uh, uh, Douglas, also describes an encounter in in his book Mindhunter, uh, indicating that that he and wrestler did uh, a couple of interviews over the years with Kemper, and he gives a lot of really detailed um, information about Kemper being like among the brightest prison inmates that he's ever come in contact with or interviewed. You know, it's just... You you can tell from the people that spoke to him the... like, they have a sense of regret about Kemper. Which is is odd to hear, but it's almost like they they saw so much potential for not a maniac murderer that it's, well, it's I don't know it, it's it's definitely bittersweet. <laughs> <clears throat> exactly, exactly. So uh, let, let's continue on because we're get, getting a little long. Um, so Douglas offers a detailed impression of Kemper. Um, he was surprised that Kemper had even agreed to originally talk to them. He thought he was merely curious about them and what they were doing as far as the uh, uh, the profiling, uh, you know, science that they were building, basically. And Douglas's first impression of Kemper was that he was fucking enormous. He says, and I quote, he could easily have broken any of us in two. <laughs> But he also that. saw that Kemper was well above average in intelligence with a high degree of self-awareness. He apparently also really liked to talk. Douglas uh, indicates that Kemper talked with them for several hours each time they went. And because they had researched his file in detail and knew about his crimes, he realized pretty quickly that they were 
um, that they were aware when he was trying to deceive them. So instead of trying, he ultimately ended up just becoming really relaxed and talking openly. Um, he seemed uh, distant and analytical to Douglas and wasn't overly emotionally moved except when he referred to his mom's treatment of him. He believed that because he looked like his father, like I said, that she hated him and used him as a target for her frustrations. He claimed that his mother made him sleep in a windowless basement because she was afraid he would molest his sister. And in this dark fucking dank basement, he said, he allowed his hatred of women to fester and grow for years. His mom made him feel so dangerous and shameful, so he killed the two family cats. As he grew up, his these feelings just fucking got worse and bigger and and just took up all of his fucking mind. So even though he continued to live with his mom, the person he hated more than anyone in the fucking world, um, you know, it's... None of that's going to help him get any fucking better. Um, he eventually had learned about psychological assessment in such detail that he knew how to describe himself in the proper psychiatric jargon. Uh, Douglas says uh, that he knew all the buzzwords. He knew how to talk about his own psychoses, which is weird having a psychopathic, uh, maybe even sociopath, that is so aware of their um, sociopathy or or psychopathy that they can can plainly talk about it with you in clinical terms. That's it seems like that's something that doesn't happen a whole fuckload. Um, no, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it doesn't happen <laughs> often at all. Somebody who uh, not only knows about it but admits that it is the case. At uh, so what really interested these two FBI guys the most was the way that Kemper saw what he was doing to other people as a game. He figured out the best way to put girls at ease and to make them believe that they were safe. This type of information, Douglas later writes, would start suggesting something important. The normal common sense assumptions, verbal cues, body language, and so on that we use to size up other people often don't apply to, psych to uh, sociopaths. Listening to Kemper... Douglas summed up in his approach and his ultimate goals, manipulation, domination, and control. Uh, Douglas also pointed out the central role of violent fantasies for the sexual predator, Edmund Kemper. He developed fantasies really early in his life, like we talked about on the first episode. Uh, it had given him a chance to rehearse these in his head for years and years and years. The relationship that he had between sex and death. To possess another person meant to take his or her life. So Kemper's confession confirmed this, and he stated that he wanted his victims to belong to him completely. It was his way of, of kind of getting back at kids who had shunned him throughout all of his childhood. But at the end of the day, his overriding fantasy was to be rid of his fucking mom. He told Douglas that before he started killing anyone, he would go quietly into his mom's bedroom while she was asleep and envision bashing her over the head with a hammer and giving well, what given what Kemper had said about her Douglas felt that Clarnell had helped to make him into a serial killer who was in fact practicing on others before aiming his frustrations at his true target who was Clarnell so even after all of this shit 
Douglas admits that he liked Ed. He was friendly, open, sensitive, had a good sense of humor. Uh, he believed that Kemper's enjoyment of dismemberment was more a more of a fetish rather rather than like pure sadism. Um, but there was a uh, a doctor Donald Lund who offered a different view in in his book about what he thought. Lund was in the thick of the, just the fucking cloud of he- fear and hysteria that was around Santa Cruz in the seventies. Um, and he had assessed, uh, other killers as well. He was called in to assess Kemper and was allowed access by Kemper's defense attorney to the trial transcripts. So to Lund, Kemper seemed like a man who had complete awareness of what he was doing and had fully relished in the perversion of it all. He believed that Kemper's sexual aggression stemmed from childhood anger and violent fantasies. He found Kemper's ambivalent relationship with his mom to be common among sexual sadists, and they generally bring the the killing of their mother into their fantasy world. The act of killing becomes just a, a fucking overwhelmingly powerful aspect of arousal in general. Um, Kemper's anger began real early. When he was separated from his dad, he he took, he had to take all the blame of the separation from his mom. And although she had expressed concern about the lack of a father figure for him, it didn't matter. She still, all day, every day, it was bad. Um, so Dr. Lund would also talk to the family now and then. He talked to Kemper's younger sister, who said he would stage his own execution in the form of a childhood game in which he had her lead him to a chair, blindfold him, and pull an imaginary lever, after which he would writhe about as if dying in a gas chamber. <sighs> wow. Okay. Kemp- Kemper also would make uh, uh, comments about his strong interest in, in weapons and his desire to kill women. Instead, at the time, he killed cats. But he also imagined such things as killing everyone in town and having sexual relations with corpses. While he really did want a a real relationship with a female, he felt so ridiculously inadequate that he decided ultimately that the only way that he could engage in one form of activity with them was killing them. And then he could have sex with their corpses. Dr. Lund That's did lament the fact leak. that... Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in, in this next paragraph, it, it really does make more sense than most. Uh, Dr. Lund was saddened by the fact that the years that Kemper had spent at Atescadero as a boy had failed to prevent him from becoming such a violent and dangerous fucking person. Uh, he says, There may be a point in the sexual sadist development beyond which sexual and violent aggressive impulses are inextricably interwoven. So, in other words, effective treatment could and most likely would have uh, helped him if it had taken place during his early childhood and taken fucking seriously. But it, it's kind of hard, I guess, to identify such children because they don't, they're not ones to usually say, hey, 
I want to I want to kill my teacher and then I want to cut her head off and then and then I want to I want to lay her down and I want to I want to stick my monkeys and peewees in her. Right. But even if they do, mm-hmm. most parents would just blow that off and as Oh, well, I don't just know. Being weird. I, I think if I think if I had a son and he came to me, I I would find it hard to blow off the fact that he was so so specific about it. But I think that's more my my hang up than anything. Um, could be, could be. Uh, Kemper is among a uh, a very small number of serial killers who has freely offered uh, a, an extraordinary amount of detail about his crimes and his fantasies um despite how fucking scary and disturbing these are like i said before and they are it it helps it helps so much and and i i can only be grateful that we now know more about how a person like him develops from such a young age because he's been so open about everything that you can actually have him trace it back to childhood and he can tell you why things happened to him and and how things developed in him and and what he thinks you can do about it to save fucking others you know yeah and and, and that might sound like he's trying to be altruistic now and and maybe he is maybe it's genuine maybe it's still uh attention seeking or fame seeking, even though I, I I fully don't believe that that's why he killed. Um, I think that was absolutely for personal fucking pleasure and nothing more. Yeah. So uh, well, it's the, the the extent and and the planning and all of that, like it, it does definitely point to uh, some sort of gratification versus just just doing it and not caring or not it it made him feel it made it wasn't just like a sexual gratification like like it it wasn't it wasn't a rapist's gratification it was a i can finally have what i see other people have as far as relationships but I'm just gonna have to do it my way, you know. Oof, your way so messy and time-consuming and exhausting. So, the last thing that we're gonna talk about is the series of interviews that a a lady by the name of Marge Van um, Beroldingen, that is, uh, and I'm sorry, Vaughn Marge Von Beroldingen. It's B E R O L D I N G E N. Um, yeah, she she wrote for a uh, a, a publication called uh, Detective Magazine, and this is from her time with old fucking Eddie Camp's the number three. Well, so this is oh, where we well, get. This is where we get the the largest wealth of insightful uh, quotes from Ed, at least in, in my my opinion, because he seemed to be more humanly candid with with Marge than he did with the FBI guys. With the FBI guys, I think it's not that he was trying to show off, 
and show how smart he was and be able to talk about everything the way he did. I think that he just adapts to to who his audience is, you know? And uh and I think the way he spoke with Marge is uh is much more revealing and telling of the real person of Eddie Kemper and not just the clinical murdering psychopath. Um so just I, what he says at the beginning of of their their talk is at first I picked up girls just to talk to them, just to try to get acquainted with people my own age and try to strike up a friendship. Um and then he said uh that's when he started having sex fantasies about the girls that he picked up hitchhiking. But he I mean he had always had these these murder and necrophilia uh fantasies but at this time picking up these girls he i guess honestly had just considered raping them but he was super scared of being caught and convicted as a rapist so he said i quote um i decided to mix the two and have a situation of rape and murder and no witnesses and no prosecution uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, theoretically, that 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 could work. <sighs> it shouldn't, but it could. Um, so, as we remember, his first two victims were eighteen-year-old uh, Fresno State College co-eds, Marianne Pesh and oh. Anita Lucchesi, oh, um, who and he he both he both stabbed them to death. Um, after picking up picking up <laughs> picking them up in Berkeley. He says, I had full intentions of killing them. I would have loved to have raped them, but not having any experience at all. And that's what we talked about last time. He fucking trails off because we're not fucking retarded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because we're he not then fucking retarded. <laughs> he then discloses the fact that uh, despite his killing of uh, Miss uh, Maria Ann, she had awakened a feeling of tenderness in him that none of his other victims had. I was really quite struck by her personality and her looks, and there was just almost a reverence there, he says. Well, Kemper that... later would lead investigators to the grave where he buried this woman who had awoken such a feeling of love and tenderness. He says, sometimes... Afterwards, I would visit there just to be near her because I loved her and, and I wanted her. What? <laughs> oh, that's what? where the insanity comes. That's that's where the insanity comes. Because yeah, maybe he knew bit. what he was doing was wrong, but if he thought he was doing what he was doing as a form of loving the person, then that's not okay. <laughs> no, that's... No part of this is okay, but even still, like that's 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 nutty bar shit right there. <laughs> so on the subject of Aikoku, the uh the fifteen year old Korean dancer, he says, I I suppose I was standing there looking. I was doing one of those triumphant things too, admiring my work and admiring her beauty. And I might say admiring my catch like a fisherman. He of course is talking about how, after murdering her, and putting her in the trunk of his car, he went to have a couple brewskis down at the old fucking goddamn what sweaty donkey 
whatever the fuck that, the name of the bar was. All right. And that he would go out and he would open up his fucking trunk and he would stare at the freshly killed 15-year-old girl. <sighs> and I, I said I said this quote, um, I think in the in the first episode, where he says, I just wanted the exultation over the party. In other words, winning over death. They were dead and I was alive. That was the victory in my case. <sighs> he's, a, he's sometimes a very literal man. <laughs> yeah, and and how and how weird is that? Because some he's he's often he's he's not really ever um uh let's say um not archaic. What what am I trying to say? Uh, Barbaric. But uh, well, no, where he he he's trying to be all flowery and and say things without saying it and and all this shit he's not being symbolic he's he's not using a lot of symbolism in what he's saying or anything he is a very matter of fact uh speaker but sometimes he's he's so goddamn straightforward that it's it's not just uh startling because you don't expect it it's off-putting because because it's it's impossible to expect someone, anyone, to be so nonplussed by what they're saying to you about this shit. That is so <sighs> fucking crazy. Mm. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> on the witness stand, he he would say, um, he would testify even that death never entered as a factor in the co-ed killings. He said, alive, they were distant, not sharing with me. I was trying to establish a relationship, and there was no relationship there. When they were being killed, there wasn't anything going on in my mind except that they were going to be mine. It was the only way they could be mine. Wow. He... he... (laughs) That sounds a bit desperate. Well, yeah, no, it sounds like... It sounds like he was like, man, I'm such a loser, and I got a little micro penis, and I just, I, it's a premature ejaculation party every time, and like yeah. people laugh at me, and like, and you know, like I just want like a like a pretty girl to be like, hey Eddie, it's nice to see you, you know, and let's go hang out maybe at the malt shop and like have a fucking, you know, whatever, and but, you know, it's it's. Uh, there, you know, I only asked the one girl, um, and then she said no, and then I was like, well, fine, they well, I'll just fucking, I'll just that. kill them all, and, and, and then I'll be able to take them to fucking have malts at the malt shop. Then I won't even have to ask them to fuck me, because I will have already removed their heads, mm. so they won't be able to do anything to stop me. What nope. a genius plan that is. Well, unless he gets the, uh, you know, the one out of every 50,000 murder victims, of course, as we all know as scientific fact, is a ghost. So, you know, he, he dodged a bullet. He dodged a ghost bullet. Because oh, they could have done something. Never they could have done something. They could have been like, Whoa! And then what do you do, right? Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do. I wonder, I wonder if there were ever any killers that did 
you know, consider that before they killed someone? You know what? That is a goddamn good question that I don't think I honestly believe that we have never asked, and I don't think I've ever heard it asked. Uh, was there any killer on record who was actually afraid that their 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 murder victims would become ghosts that would then haunt them? Huh. Huh. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure that out someday. I'm curious. That's kind. Of, that's kind of neat. Uh, yeah. Hmm. So, um, his desire to possess these co-eds uh, led him even further than murder, of course. Um, <clears throat> in court, like I said earlier, he, he, in his fantasies, he literally made two of the girls part of me by eating parts of them, which he later recanted, but whatever. Of this, he said, they were like spirit wives. I had their spirits. I still have them, he declared in the courtroom. Which is exactly what the father of a horribly murdered and dismembered girl wants to hear in the fucking courtroom. Is that your fucking daughter is still with the dude. <laughs> Fuck, man. No, uh, honestly, yeah, there's not many things that, are, that that's more disturbing than that for a parent. Uh, Fucking anyone, Jesus Christ! Anyone man. who cares, yeah. <laughs> just normal people who. That shit's crazy. That shit's so, crazy. So, so after the first three, um, he he didn't kill again until he bought that twenty-two caliber pistol, um, and of that purchase, he says, "I went bananas after I got that twenty-two. Yeah, his his whole his whole <laughs> affectation just changed in my head to I went fucking bananas. That's a big son bitch to be talking like that, but still. Oh, but wouldn't he be a much scarier big son of a bitch if he did talk like that? Oh, of course. Hi guys, who wants to go uh be cops and stuff and shoot guns? Let's go bananas. I don't think they would have let him voice over that many hours worth of uh, e-books with that kind of voice, but... You know. Luke! Look in your heart! You know it to be true! Maybe it's a, a workable gimmick. I think I should do the, the Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy. No, you know what? I think I want to do the prequel trilogy in that voice. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. Especially... obnoxious. Especially Mace Windu's parts. You know, old Sam Jackson coming up and being like, Get these motherfucking snakes off my motherfucking plane before I go bananas. Jesus, Jar Jar doesn't need to get any worse. You are not allowed to do that character in that voice. Mm. Oh man, that is the character now. (laughs) What's that you say? Um... So, I lost my place with my stupid bananas comment. Okay, uh, the day bananas. that he bought the the twenty two, uh, as we know, he he is the day that he killed Cynthia Shaw, who was the nineteen year old Santa Cruz girl. Uh, he killed her in the trunk of his car. He put her in there and he shot her in the trunk, and then he carried her body into his mom's apartment, 
and kept it in his bedroom closet overnight and then dismantled her the next day in the bathtub while his mom was at work. That's the one. Uh, Cynthia, that's the head that uh, that he buried in the backyard. He also what? says about this, on top of what I said about the joke of him saying, oh, my mom always wanted people to look up to her. <laughs> he says more candidly um, about this burying of the head, with her face turned toward my bedroom window, and sometimes at night, I talk to her, saying love things, the way you do, you know, to a girlfriend or wife. <laughs> what do you mean sometimes? So that... She was only in there overnight. <laughs> Supposedly. <laughs> Wait, no, the the head that he buried okay. in the backyard. Oh, the head. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so I think about <laughs> this like... Like, like we said in, in, in the last episode, like you have to be actively trying to ignore someone who lives in the same household with you that you clearly, that, that clearly doesn't have, you know, the, the complete opposite schedule that you do. So you see this motherfucker all the time. You gotta be right, right, right. purposely trying to ignore everything he does and says to not pick up on any of this, regardless of... My thoughts on why Clarnell didn't do or say something about Eddie being fucking crazy in the house and a serial killer and, and such like that is that I think um, that she maybe even uh, enjoyed his descent into insanity a little bit. She... I, I, and there's no, there's no proof of this whatsoever whatsoever but i think that she maybe uh liked the fact that this giant doofus of a man that she hated so much and blamed for so much that he uh you know was gonna go crazy and i think she liked it that's that's my theory anywho's that's a tough one i i've i've known parents to be so fed up you know, with their kids' behavior that they do start ignoring them and shit like that. But, like, I'm just... I, I just pictured how attentive my mom is to the house. And it's not like she would ever, you know, go in my room and go through my closets and all that kind of shit all the time. But my mom would know right. if some whack shit was going on in her fucking house. And you better believe she'd be going through and opening doors and finding out what the fuck's happening. <laughs> and and I'm just I'm just picturing, not you know not just my mom, but just let's just hypothetically say me with a kid and blah blah blah. And I just you know maybe I maybe maybe there was a jacket and I was moving stuff into the attic or some shit, and I went to go put a jacket in the motherfucker's room, and I walk into the closet and I find a fucking body. I just I'm thinking about. You know, all of the, the <laughs> things that might go through a person's mind, a parent's mind, when, if something like, well, oh, I man, mean, can you imagine, she, can you, she, as far as we know, she never found anything, never saw anything, right. never, because she so fucking ignored the shit yeah, out so of I don't, her. I don't know how any of that happened. Um, but back to, uh, Marge's interviewing of, of, of Ed, um, she, uh, yeah. She said at the end that 
of course, her visits with Kemper were just a completely unforgettable experience. Um, and she says, as he talked on and on and on, he was many things. He was a lonely young man, grateful for companionship on the eve of what was certainly to be his last day outside of prison. Uh, he was an angry and bitter sibling, recalling what he felt was rejection and a lack of love from a divorced father who cared more for his second family than he did us. He was a son who alternately hated and loved a mother he described as a man-hater who had three husbands and took her violent hatred of my father out on me, quote-unquote. He was sometimes wry and uh, kind of a boastful recounter, chronicling, chronicling the events of his life and a person quick to see the the humorous side of things and laugh even if the joke is on him but last but not least he was an anguished and remorseful killer when speaking of the co-eds whose bodies he had sexually assaulted after death and of the pain he had caused their families um he says the day those family uh, the day those fathers of pesci pesci and the lucessa girl um the day that they testified in court, it was very hard for me. I felt terrible. I wanted to talk to them about their daughters, to comfort them. But what could I say? But, but nothing. There's fucking nothing you could say. Nothing at all you could say. <sighs> for the goal of comforting them? No. No, no because they're just thinking, God, if you weren't so huge, I'd be punching you in the face right now. <sighs> yeah. So, uh, I will I will end this with how she uh, ends her her story here with uh, with Edmund. The whole time that she was there visiting with him, um, she he like they they were smoking cigarettes the whole time, and uh, she had been lighting his cigarettes with her lighter as they sat and talked. Um, so when she had to leave, uh, she says he stood in the doorway, his hair brushing the top of the door jam, watching me leave as if he were graciously bidding a guest goodbye from his home. He says to a nearby deputy, could I have some matches? Because she had been lighting his cigarettes all day. And the sergeant on duty at the desk said to the deputy, he can't have any matches, but you can go ahead and light his cigarettes for him. Well, Kemper looked at her and grinned like a teenager. Yesterday, I had matches. But isn't it funny when you're convicted, you immediately become combustible. Well, Ed, she retorted, if you'd learn to stay out of trouble, you wouldn't find yourself in these predicaments. So he says back, right on, with a final salute of his hand and a smile. Right on, right on. Thus ends this it ends it that's that's quite the series it's been quite the series this guy totally bananas totally totally bananas and totes nanners man you know what the bananas are in 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 reality right is um they're just a construct of um mm, Let's say an wrote? episode of See No Hear No Speak No. Ooh, so the squishy UFOs 
the stinky conspiracies and the lovey-dovey moitas. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say the bananas murders, but... Bananas. You are never getting bananas rid of that. Oh, cream ne- you are never getting rid of that fucking guy now. Now that that, uh, now that that character exists, he ain't going nowhere, Chris. I'll still take him over the the Donnie Darko bunny. This shit is bananas. B a n a n a s. Shut up, Muggsy. Okay. I'm the Donnie Darko bunny. Yeah, that one. That one. Sweet dreams, Chris. Lady in that, that's red. About, that's about enough of that. Is here with me? With bananas. Oh my god. If I'm dead tomorrow, it's gonna be your fault. I will name you specifically. Even if it's not my fault, uh, I'm gonna take credit for it. Note. How about that? How about there is no yeah. me without you? And there's no you without me. My suicide note's just gonna be Jason, 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 Rambo. And they're gonna be like, wow, this guy was really, like, really obsessed with this Jason Rambo guy. Like, it's obvious that he had some kind of just sexual infatuation with him and just couldn't get it out of his head. It was a rough breakup. A rough, rough breakup. (laughs) So... Count down. Until next week, kids. double down. Hey, you know what? I, I will say just one more thing, and that is I want everybody out there, you know, in situations that might seem um, overwhelming or scary or or infuriating even sometimes, just always remember to keep your head. I want you to want me I need you to need me I love you 